What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. But the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Whereas the long ad read, you will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday, and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. Hello there. How are you? Welcome back to the Emulsion Podcast. I'm Justin Kana. This episode is definitely a day late. Most of you know why, though. I've been on the road for a minute. I have another flight to LA tonight, actually. So I'm stoked to get this into your ears before that. Quickie reminder here, last chance to RSV. VP for the meetup that I'm hosting in Los Angeles to get Gorilla Tacos. We're going to get tacos at Gorilla Tacos on Monday. So I hope to see you there if you are in town, but that is enough about those quickie updates. My guest today is Micah Mowry. He is a chef, sustainable food advocate. I really connected with Micah because he's one of the few guys I've had the pleasure of meeting who is actually on a similar path to mine. We jive on a lot of the same topics, and we met when he was actually at Equilibrium Farms. And some of you know that I've done dinners there in the past. Uh, Micah and I have actually cooked on behalf of Equilibrium Farms together. Uh, He would write the menu and he would need an extra set of hands, so I would come in and help him crush those out. But I'm really stoked to have been able to have caught him now during his transition time as he starts to explore projects of his own kind of beyond Equilibrium Farms. So quick background on Micah. He graduated from the Culinary Institute of America. He has worked at restaurants like Gramercy Tavern, Osteria Francescana, Mirazur, and even a couple places in Japan, which many Western chefs myself included, haven't had the opportunity to experience. So in this conversation, we chat through topics like how to pursue an unconventional path, no-kill meat, and grown protein sources, growing up in Alaska and how that influenced his relationship with food, chefs getting savvy about the internet, and so much more. If you have questions for Micah at any point in this interview or you want to get in touch with him maybe after the fact, his channels are linked up in all the descriptions of wherever you happen to be listening. So please enjoy our conversation. But I, I really wanted to start with a quote that you sent in your last email. Okay. And I'm going to read it. And it's, it, it's, it's a direction I think we as chefs have been spared from having to learn so far. But we will get left in the dust if we don't get savvy fast. And that's in relation to like media, putting yourself out there, personal brand stuff. Yeah. So I guess that's, that, that's where I want to start and where your head's at with that. And kind of like now that you're at mikeamari.com. Yeah, like what 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 are you thinking about? Um, well, it's something that I've never had a natural inclination towards. Um, even you know when back in the day when Facebook was getting big, like I was on it, but it just never really resonated with me very much. I was never the person who was using it. I was always the person who was being made fun of for not knowing how to use it. Totally, and that's kind of where I lived my life up until now Mm -hmm. and just shunning it, putting it off to the side. No, I'll get to it later. I'll get to it later. Um, but, uh, that works when you're, when your nose is to the grindstone and you're in the kitchen and it just matters that you're putting out good food and doing what the chef tells you. Cause it's like, what are you going to share? Right. Sometimes when it's like, what are you going to share? Yeah. Day after day after day. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Going out too late. um, (laughs) Yeah. Waking up too late. Yeah. Working too hard. Yeah. Um, it's, pretty monotonous from the inside Mm -hmm. and so 
now that I'm looking ahead to not just building a business, but I think it's important now to have like a personal brand for not just chefs, but for anyone. Um, and again, I think that's something that's spilling onto chefs. Um, I have to get savvy too. Totally. So that's, that's what I'm trying to learn right now. That's like the jujitsu of my life. Yep. Yep. And so have you adopted any resources or like what, what have been particularly impactful? Because there's a lot of people who are in your same shoes who are like, man, I see people doing stuff on the internet, but I like, I'm starting at zero. So like any people or any like role models that you're looking at to kind of. Well, I mean, honestly, I don't even know what, what all the bases that I have to hit are totally Uh, at this point. It seems like you start with the simple social media stuff, Mm -hmm. Instagram. Um, It feels like to me you can get away with just Instagram Mm -hmm. these days. Which is weird though. Yeah. And you got to be careful with that. You're solo platforming. Yeah. Solo platforming. And it's also like the the fact that uh, it is so, it it is very saturated. But I saw, I, I was reading something the other day where it was like the likelihood of building an audience from zero to a million in 2019 like the odds are so low. Yeah. Like unless you're like, I don't know, Will Smith hopping on Instagram yeah. for the first time and like you already have it's this saturated. huge reputation. It's so difficult. It's super saturated and um, it seems like everyone's trying to tell the same story mm-hmm. or, or at least they're telling all their different stories the same way. Yep. And so for me, it's really been more than anything looking in and figuring out, okay, who am I? Yep. And what do I stand for? Totally. And as simply as possible what am I trying to share with people? Yep. Yep. And, um, I take a lot of inspiration from, uh, mostly people I've met in person who are doing it successfully. Um, you know, uh, there's Coco Kelly. I don't know if you're familiar. Cassandra, who, um, I've worked with on occasion and know, uh, just, uh, a little bit. And she's got a successful blog and has for years and just seeing that was kind of my first brush with someone who was paying their salary uh-huh. just with a blog. It's like, a fascinating time to be alive. Yeah, I did Isn't not even weird? know <laughs> that that was possible. Uh-huh. And um, now, I mean, Joe Rogan, obviously, yeah. you know, doing it as a podcast. It's it's really about, I think, defining what it is you what your message is. Yeah. And finding a way to share that with people uh, succinctly and clean and without getting bogged down in other shit. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I was going to get into that, like things that you're trying to avoid, because I like I like the fact that you mentioned that you're trying to f- seek out these people in real life yeah. so that you have some context. Yeah, yeah, so, you yeah. know, so you know that it's not all flexing on the Internet. Right. Exactly. And that there's actually like some some uh, stake to the sizzle kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's so interesting. Is there anything else that you like? Has there been any advice? And I guess this is like to also try to dissuade anyone that's trying to do it for the wrong reason. Like any advice that you've seen? that like you don't want to heed or that uh i mean just anyone who says don't do something uh-huh i, uh-huh. I ignore i try and ignore all of that <laughs> that's awesome um i've read something recently that i really liked and i don't know where it was from and i don't know who wrote it but it was basically a bunch of successful people who were saying um you know the most important lesson and it's like end of 2018 like you see all these articles popping up yep and the advice that I read, I don't know if I read the whole article or not, but the advice that I read that stuck with me was, you know, if someone tells you that what your idea is won't work or that you can't do it for some reason, 
first you should find out if they've tried to do that thing. Totally. And most of the time they haven't tried to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like someone opening a restaurant, um, being told by their friends, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. And it's like, have you ever tried to open a restaurant? Do you even know what you're talking about? Um, there's this kind of idea that people think that they're experts or that they have the knowledge and can make a statement and they can, but you don't have to listen to it. And so I think, um, there's enough in our culture of like listening to other people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to listen to yourself. Decide for yourself. Yeah. And I it's want about you- like, what do you want to spend your time doing? Mm-hmm. And if you can find something that you want to spend your time doing, then just do it. Yeah, because like the people giving you the advice won't have to live with the ramifications of that, right? Like if someone yeah. tells you, oh, I don't think you or, or, flip it the other way. Like if someone, because I think it, it, it can be harmful the other way too, right? Like if you fill someone with like grandeur or yeah. like yeah, 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 yeah. really bad, uh, like, yeah, you can totally open a restaurant. Yeah. Totally. Because again, they don't have to live with the ramifications yeah. of you taking out a loan and yeah. set, taking out a second mortgage to open a restaurant. Yeah. It's just interesting. Well, if someone asks me if they should open a restaurant, I'll say no. Yeah, totally. But And I've <laughs> never tried most to open will. a restaurant, yeah. but I've certainly worked in starting up restaurants. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, I want you to tell me, and I want you to critique how I made this beverage. Because normally the show has some sort of a beverage element to it. Yeah, I call it today's are. beverage. So what, 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 what are we drinking? Um, we can call it the Micah Spritz. Boom. Non-alcoholic Spritz. Nice. Spark. San, I chose San Pellegrino. San Pellegrino. Um, I started drinking this in New York where I drank the Saratoga water. Got it. Um, which I like their sparkling water a lot, but San Pellegrino works for sure. Um, just lemon and bitters. Nice. It's nice and simple. It's really refreshing. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, um, I'm a person who, uh, will have like stomach, like all of my emotions are like in my stomach, yep. which I yep. think is why I cook. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having something like bitters, I just like that. It kind of settles things down. And where were you when you started drinking this? Probably New York. Okay. Yeah, this is something I've drank for a while, uh, years. Got it. So, I, I mean, maybe we should just go right into that because that was like our first connecting piece where we decided yeah. like, oh man, we know similar people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think the backstory from how I remember it is we know John Kim. Yeah, John who Kim. Who was wh- yeah. cooking at Gramercy when you were at Gramercy Tavern. Yeah, Um Let's see here. I don't know exactly the timeline anymore, but I know that we had overlapped at CIA yep. also. Oh, that's right. Um, and then I feel like I was ahead of him a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I had done my internship at also at Gramercy Tavern. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then I departed to Japan. And then when I returned, uh, went back to work at Gramercy. And I think around that time is when he started. Got it. So... so- why? Well, the New York part makes sense because you were at CIA, right? Yeah. Like yeah, I wanted yeah, to yeah. go, I was at Per Se, I wanted to go back to Per Se. Yeah. Circumstances went differently and I ended up in Chicago. Yeah. But I guess the, the the question that I wanted to ask is, being a line cook in New York City, is it still as worth it or like, because there's a lot of people who are like, well, should I go to San Francisco? Do I still need to go to Paris to work? You know, like... Is it still, does it still hold as much weight? Can you still become just as much of a badass as you could back? I mean, this would have been 2012. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think in in one sense, it's foolish of us to think that we can be as much badasses as people who were working in New York City in like the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that there's this 
Mm, same thing that's happening everywhere. You know, things are being, the, the edges are being softened a little bit. Um, I know at Gramercy Tavern, for example, uh, um, you know, that's a restaurant and a, and a part of a restaurant group that has represented since the inception of it, um, treating employees better than anywhere else. And even there, they've been struggling with um, fallout of, you know, the whole, uh, you know, I don't know how to say it, but the workplace um, conditions. And, Is this because of the no tipping thing? Uh, I mean, there's no tipping that's an aspect of it, but I think mostly it's about the lifestyle that, that cooks tend Interesting. to lead. Interesting, yep. uh, Lead. And um, they, they've been struggling with that. And I, th- I think, to me, seeing a place like Gramercy who's being asked to be uh, or, or forced to be even kinder to their staff, it makes me wonder, like, in retrospect... That's by far the nicest kitchen I have ever worked in. Wow. You know, from a, from a friendly perspective, uh-huh. people were super caring. I mean, that place is a family. Yep. They really take care of you. I still have uh, role models who are working in that restaurant. Um, and so to think that they're not kind enough makes me wonder, like, what's kind enough? And it's not to say we shouldn't be better and treat employees better and that sort of thing, but... But, um, you know, I think the days of working 80 or 100 hour or 120 hour work weeks are quickly disappearing. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, for better or worse, like I think that's where you learn how to cook uh, and like put the pedal to the metal and like push yourself. And um, and, you know, it's about that demand for perfection that if you're not getting that and there's like there's different ways to accomplish that. But the the way that's worked historically has been through cruelty yep and uh so i don't know how you get people to strive for perfection and achieve it so regularly sure um without that and and again like it doesn't make it better i'm not saying it's better but but it's going to do something and i think it to me i wonder where you can go in new york that you would get that experience and if you can't go in new york and find it where can you go and find it it's interesting you bring that up because there's a gentleman who is working with me to kind of get his first Michelin experience. Yeah. And he sent me this very long message in New York. Yeah. Cook in New York. And he sent me this message that was, um, he really wanted to get his ass kicked. And to someone like you and me, where we like, we went through the ringer. We know what that feels like. Yeah. It's that, um, I think about like, uh, my dad, my dad's like first generation coming to the U S and his whole thesis is like, he never wanted, me or my sister to have any any sort of problems because he yeah. grew up dirt poor in India and so I feel like sometimes when we've been through the ringer like that we want the same thing for someone else and we're less likely to recommend them to take the hard path yeah because it's like and I think that that is one of the reasons why you see this weird generation of people who have worked at Alinea or 11 Madison Park who open these places who are much more HR focused they yeah. don't want to charge $300 for the menu yeah and I think it's a really interesting kind of thing do you have any thoughts on that as far as like we don't want to the, the the way that i like to say it is we don't want to be like our parents in the restaurant yeah. space we don't want to be like the chefs that we worked for yeah i think <clears throat> i think in general that's true i think again it's these trends of uh millennials mostly moving totally. out of restaurants and starting their own and and that demographic is super focused on like you're saying the hr stuff um I want people to have that push still. Yep. I still yep. want them to go through that experience because it was highly valuable 
Um, the thing is, it can't be the only way to succeed or the only way to work in restaurants. Um, in New York, I feel like, I mean, I've always heard legendary stories of the Danielle Balud restaurants mm-hmm. um, as far as uh, them being very, very hard on their cooks. Uh, obviously, certain places, 11 Madison Park included, depending on who the sous chefs are and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. like can definitely have that reputation as well. Um, but but increasingly, like when I talk to, you know, 17, 18 year olds who are thinking about going to culinary school, that kind of stuff, I'm usually usually not pushing them that direction. I'm saying, hey, man, like there's not even a reason to really go through that when you see these other successful restaurants. Sure. And like maybe you lose something, but is it more valuable than what you're gaining? Mm-hmm. I don't really think so. Totally. I think that that work life balance is good for everyone. Uh-huh. And the more that you perpetuate that cycle of pain and suffering in order to uh, just survive, I think that just doesn't benefit the industry or the people who are eating the food or anything. That's so interesting that you say that, like, I haven't heard of it in the, in the break the cycle reference yet. Yeah. And I, and I guess that that is maybe at the core of where it is, but it has to be replaced. So the metaphor I like to think about is um, the crossing the street analogy, right? Yeah. Like there's so many kids where you can tell them look both ways before you cross the street and they will listen. They don't like, they don't, they they will follow your instructions yeah. and they're like okay cool mom and dad said look both ways before you cross the street that's what we're gonna do other people have to get hit by a fucking car yeah, yeah to realize yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. oh my god i need to look both ways before i cross yeah. the street and so it's like it it, it transcends that and it, it matches with that mentality of like you have to think about how you're going to grow up in the industry because there's a lot of misfits in the in the in it's as, as cooks, you know what I mean, and they need that. They yeah. need so, some people need that, and so yeah. I just think, do you have? I was going to ask you, do you have any funny or n- nightmare stories of working in New York? Of like something crazy happened with prep or during service, or like? I mean, I have a few typical stories of like people spilling entire. Uh, pots of hot oil over a flat top sort of thing and like things going up in flames. Um, but I think my craziest stories come from uh, Mirazur okay. in France. I wanted to get into that. A bunch of people asked yeah. about working internationally. So yeah. get, what happened? Uh, well, uh, not to name any names <laughs> or put anything yep. down, yep. but that's a super fucking intense work experience. Okay. Um, when I was there, I don't know what year it was, 2012, 13, 14, somewhere mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just for a summer, they, the, the restaurant is run entirely on stagiaires. So Interesting. everyone is essentially unpaid except yep. for, um, you know, the exec sous, couple of sous chefs, and then like the chef de parties of the, of the restaurant. Yeah. So it's really like, you know, four or five paid employees and then like 30 unpaid. (laughs) And, um, it's run like the military, like you, I mean, shit, man, I don't even know where to start. First of all, you'd wake up at, you know, seven in the morning, six in the morning. And, um, the train's not running yet where I was staying. And it was, it was like housing that was, uh, helped they helped me find it. I still had to pay for it, so I was paying to work to work. Yep. And uh, so I, it was before the train was working. It was operating, so I would have to walk, and it would be like an hour, hour and twenty minutes walk. 
and I would get to work and, um, you know, where I was staying didn't even have a kitchen. There was no kitchen. I couldn't cook for myself. So if I had food, it was like, you know, baguette and cheese and, yep. you know, caramel sauce or some <laughs> shit that was left over from, you know, the previous day's work. Yep. I would get to the restaurant and just start working. And you would work. Usually, if you were lucky, if we weren't too busy, we'd have like an hour or two hour break during the day mm-hmm. in the middle. And we could go and find some time to relax or something. But more often than not, that wasn't the case. And we just kept working. And we'd work until 11, 12 o'clock. And again, the train wouldn't be running because oh. it was too late. So you'd have to walk back. And nothing would be open to eat. Uh. And the staff meal was super slim. And it was stuff that was like cooked by the youngest, most green cook in the restaurant who... Um, you know, I couldn't communicate with for whatever reason they they only spoke Portuguese mm-hmm. or who knows what it was. Yep. And it was like the same food would be cooked and you'd eat it one day and then they would leave it out all day long so people could snack on it and then they would be put in the fridge and then the next day they'd take it out and reheat it and that would go on for like three days. Dear God. And we'd just joke, you know, we'd be sitting there <laughs> eating it, and we'd just be joking, like, Who's gonna die next? Yep. Like yep. This is not this is not safe. But um, in addition to that, were the really wonderful experiences of like seeing people get hit with hot pans or like get spoons flung at them. And when I say like a spoon flung at them, I mean like you're a professional tennis player and you just like decided to whip a spoon as hard as you can um, at a person who's twenty feet away from you. And like there's three people in between you and that person, yep. and who knows who is who it's going to hit or what it's going to bounce off of. Uh, plenty of you know good old school punching and kicking uh-huh. and that kind of stuff uh-huh. um, that was and i mean more than once i heard like sheer utter screams of pain and i mean like, yeah, yeah yeah that was an interesting place to work so i feel like that that was like you said 1980s yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> right and then 2000s we have like the I don't know. You would call it like emotional abuse, right? Mm. Where it's like mm. you, you talk shit about each other. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. What I mean? You're never going to be good enough. Totally, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. And then like maybe and hopefully our generation will be the one that kind of like breaks that cycle and then figures out a way to like harden people up but without kind of and I don't know, maybe like there's some there's some there's maybe there's inspiration to be had from somebody else like maybe the army's doing something now that's like a little bit more in line with being a little bit more humane and still making sure that they're creating really professional, uh, tough people that can execute without any sort of the, I don't know, the PTSD that you and I probably both have. Yeah. I think, um, this is a question I wonder about is like, how do you be disciplined without experiencing suffering? Totally. And, um, you know, something, Something that I just heard David Goggins say yesterday was, um, you know, discipline is repetitively, repetitively doing something that you really don't enjoy. And I think there's truth to that. And I wonder what the limit of this cycle is. I think that, um, you know, at a certain point, like we are supposed to be tough and be able to survive things. And if we get burned or cut and we start crying and can't handle it, then how are we supposed to survive when something bigger happens? Yep. And I, I mean, there's just, there's pros and cons to everything. And you, the consequences, the unintended consequences, all this stuff just piles up and it gets pretty confusing. And so 
I've just tried to push all of that aside and say, okay, this is the life I want to live. And so that's what I'm going to do. I think it's frustrating when you and I can look at some of it now because it's, it's, it's so internalized now, right? Like if we know that we need to be disciplined at something and like the gentleman you mentioned, David Goggins, he's incredibly self-motivated to do yeah, this kind yeah, of he's stuff. He's a maniac. Totally. So I think the problem comes when someone is not, it doesn't come from within and then yeah. it's whatever forced. it is, whether it's the environment or uh, an individual who yeah. needs to kind of like be that person. Yeah. That's where it comes from. And so, I mean, I guess if I had to think of like a takeaway for someone that's listening who's like, well, I'm in a really shitty work environment or like I'm just wanting to start off would be to like make sure that you don't need, make sure that you don't require that discipline from outside. Make sure that yeah. you can just, like you said, show up and repeatedly do those things that you don't want to do every single time. I mean, I think it's important to recognize and, and especially as a young person starting off, I know I I had a horrible under, time understanding this is those things really are building character. They mm-hmm. really are. Yeah. Like it's knowing how to just do the job that you have to do every single day and doing it to the best of your abilities and growing and taking on more work. Um, you know, I have a good friend, Nick Wong, who um, taught me a lesson in the kitchen. He's a few years older than me and, and maybe not more experienced but uh, in the kitchen specifically, but certainly is more experienced in general. Um, and he taught me uh, to rather than put other people down and, or be frustrated that they're not holding their, their weight or carrying their weight, um, is to take something off of them you know, and to do more work Uh and to constantly be showing people that you can do more, that you can take more. And, and there's a kind of egoic, uh, challenge and adrenaline rush that you get from that of being like, Oh, you can't do that motherfucker. Don't worry. I'll do it. And I'll do my prep work. Uh You can't do this. I'm going to do it on top of it. Uh And like taking more and more on, uh, and going above and beyond. I mean, really it's, it's about, you don't want your chef to come and tell you you're fucking up. You yeah. want to have everything in order and be helping other people. Totally. And I think that you have to step outside of yourself a little bit in order to get to that point of being like, how can I help the team succeed? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's a big lesson that you can't really learn until you've uh, struggled to even accomplish yep. your daily task list. It's so funny that, that I see it as like 105% of your prep list is done. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like yeah, yeah, exactly. Gone a little bit more yeah, yeah, above. Yeah. And the first time you do it. 100 is a C yeah, is what I was taught. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 100 is a C. That's awesome. That's exactly what's expected of you. But I, not, hearing you say it, it, it brings me back to like the first, it was like the first or second time that I did it for the first time when you like take something off of somebody else's list. Yeah. And I almost want to meme it. You, have you seen those memes where it's like, yeah, sex is okay, but have you ever? <laughs> it's like, yeah, sex is okay, but have you ever taken something off of somebody else's prep list yeah, after yeah, yours yeah, is yeah. done? There like the go. feeling is like insane, <laughs> especially if you're coming from. It feels I couldn't great. finish my prep list last yeah. year. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and I mean, advice. start small. Take lemon segments. Like when you're cutting your lemons, cut enough lemons for somebody else. Uh huh. Like it starts super small. Yeah. And then and then before you know it, you're taking on. Oh, you didn't have time to make family meal. Don't worry, I'll make your family meal too. Ooh, so, it's true. Yeah. It's so true. So you answered that. Um, I want to take it back a little bit further. Your time in Alaska. What was yeah. your relationship with food growing up? And how yeah. did that kind of 
maybe you can talk a little bit about how it's influencing you now, but yeah. Um, I mean, I think when I was in it, I didn't realize that it was inspiring to mm-hmm. me. It just was my life. But, um, now going back, it really is a huge part of why I'm cooking the food that I'm cooking. And, um, you know, in Alaska, one of the things that we have that maybe other places don't is, and some other places do I've heard, but, um, is a huge in, uh, um, there's a huge drive across the state to educate the youth about the, about Alaska, Alaska history, you know, the economy, what's going on. And it's really to combat what we call the brain drain, which is, you know, the best students in high school get scholarships and go to off to college and other places. And as soon as you get to New York or to, you know, anywhere outside of Alaska, you're not going to come back usually. Interesting. And so in order to combat that, they had, um, you know, tons of classes that you, that was mandated for, by the state that every student had to take. And um, even before taking those classes, I had a pretty good understanding of the native Alaskan culture just because my parents were very uh, influenced by it and pretty uh, interested with it. Um, a lot of the children's books that I would be read as a child were native Alaskan stories that had been adapted and, um, you know, one thing that always just really left a mark and that I'd be thinking about even as a kid, but I didn't understand why was they would talk about going out hunting and, um, they would get an animal, they would kill a caribou and they would be thanking the caribou for giving its life. Their belief was that this caribou stepped out into that area where you could find it because it knew you were there and it was there to feed you and your family. Interesting. And um, I think that kind of respect for nature yep. and that understanding of uh, the ecosystems that we live within, um, that was a, it took me a really long time to put all that together, but I think it really did influence me. Um, obviously, there's, you know, the incredible seafood, the incredible game that's in Alaska, um, but I think it was just that idea of being thankful for where your food's coming from. It's very disconnected now, don't you think? Yeah, I I would think it's the most disconnected it's ever been. Yep. Because that doesn't happen anymore. It's not even that it's, it's not even that you don't have a respect for it. It's like you can't even identify it. Like it's you can't even vilified. look at a piece of meat it's, or fish or <laughs> I um, you know, I'm a person who likes to dive in and learn more about things. And there are people who are more like this than me, but I'm, I do like that. And, um, as a chef, that's led me to, uh, do slaughters. Yep. And, um, the respect that I have for the animals and for the people who raise the animals and who do it in an incredible, incredible way is, is really, it's changed my life and it's incredibly profound. And what blows my mind is that this stuff is, not only are we disconnected, but living that way is absolutely vilified. Mm-hmm. And I just don't understand why we would vilify um, what is absolutely has been a part of human nature. Now, I totally believe, you know, the, you know, veganism, whatever. Like, I think that there's room for that in the world. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, but it's strange to me that we vilify something that's been done forever. For both of us being 
as big of Joe Rogan fans as we are, and yeah. I won't talk about it at nauseum because we could go on. Yeah, big fan. The episode that he had recently, and I'm not going to butcher the name, but it's a guy from Australia who's a hunter. There was one line in it that it was particularly impactful for me hearing it because there are so many people who hunt who can go on for days about how great it is. But he, the, the guy from Australia gave this line where it was, if everybody turned vegan, the planet would go crazy because we'd have to clear out so much land that would end up killing animals anyways yeah. to make room for all the farmland that we would need to produce enough vegetables for everybody. Yeah. And then conversely, if everybody became hunters, the animal population would just go extinct. Yeah. So there needs to be this kind of like both... I think people going on one end of the spectrum or another is kind of like a personal preference. Maybe it's a little bit like ideologically based, yeah. but I just think it's funny that like there's no, <laughs> you can't, you can't say one way or the other and be correct. Like yeah. you can't push everybody in one way. Like it needs, it needs moderation. There needs to be moderation. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, it's first of all, it's a really touchy subject, and it's one that I really think is important for people to be talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a conversation I've tried to have with a lot of different people, and it's not easy because people really are tied to these belief systems. And what what I personally believe is, um, you know, we are omnivores. You know, like our bodies are are capable of eating meat and vegetables, right. and therefore. Um, there is a biological basis in doing these things. Now, I totally understand if if a person believes that one of these, you know, for example, eating meat doesn't align with their uh, belief value and uh, their beliefs and v- values. I understand that. Um, but for example, one thing that I I talk to a lot of vegans about is this idea of you know, oh, let's plant soy all over the planet and then we can all eat and it's way better for the environment. And it's like, okay, well, even if in the ideal world that works, there is a lot of land which is not high quality enough uh, from a from a soil perspective to be growing vegetables mm-hmm. on. But if you put animals grazing on that land, yeah. they are able to survive on it. They eat grass. And after a decade or two decades or three or four decades, that land is going to be rich enough to plant vegetables. Right. And in the meantime, what do you do with those animals? Uh-huh. Like, I don't believe it's evil for us to eat them. Mm-mm. And so that's kind of, you know, like if we're throwing out all the wonderful idealistic ideas of how to survive in the future, to me, that's one of them. Interesting. So going from... Alaska to New York City. I'm kind of taking the timeline back a little bit. What was going through your head when you were getting ready to kind of like send in that application, or like why choose why choose New York to mm. go to school? Mm. Um, there's a lot of people who are getting ready, getting re- like planning for culinary school. They're in high school. They're thinking yeah. about being a chef. Yeah. Um, possibly making that big giant move. Um, was it something where like the schools in Alaska just didn't make the cut for you or you had ambitions to kind of, you know, like what, what was going through your head at that time? Yeah. Well, um, something that was instilled in me at a young age was, uh, you know, there's a line that's been repeated to me a million times. And this, uh, comes from my stepfather, um, who would say, it doesn't matter if you're a ditch digger, just be the best damn ditch digger. And 
um, you know, going into making the decision to go into cooking was kind of uh, one that my family was torn about. You know, there was a lot of ideas about, you know, me taking a more traditional path. And uh, ultimately, I decided that what I really wanted to do was work with food. And for me, it was about sharing the experience of a great meal with people. Um, and that that great meal isn't about just food. It's about the whole thing. It's about being around people that you love um, and having an incredible experience, having full bellies and sharing. And um, kind of really it's about after you've eaten and you're just sitting there and there's these moments of perfection. And that's what I got really obsessed with and I wanted to share with people. And um, I, you know, I wanted to go to the best school. Sure. And I applied to a few places. I didn't really know my ass from a hole in the ground at that point. And yeah. so I applied to uh, the university, this Art Art Institute yeah. here in Seattle, because yeah. it was close to Alaska. Um, and I applied to uh, Johnson & Wales in mm-hmm. Rhode Island and then to CIA. And I went and looked at all those schools. And the last place I went to, let's see here. I came to Seattle first. And I remember meeting with a dean or something like that. And they said, um, they're talking to me about my experience and this and that. And we mentioned that we're going to go check out CIA. And they're like, oh, you got accepted to CIA. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, you should go there. Ooh. And (laughs) yeah. Boom. Don't name names. I don't remember his name, so Uh don't worry about it. It's Uh uh, Art Institute of Seattle. That's so funny. Uh, Anyway, and so he was a... He was a that's alumni. Great. Yeah, that's he, great. He had graduated from CIA. Got it. And then I went to the CIA campus in New York, and it was just, I mean, for those of you who haven't been there, it's like a mecca for food, mm-hmm. especially for young people who aren't familiar with it. It's an incredible place to be inspired and to get uh, into the lifestyle. I did not know anything really about it. I didn't even know what a Michelin star was. Mm-hmm. I did not know what a Michelin star was Crazy how before that I went to CIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know anything. And um, This is the campus in Hyde Park for everybody that's yeah. wondering. Yeah. And um, so I went, checked that place out, and I was very impressed with it. And then we went out to the Johnson and Wales in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there looking, we weren't as excited about it. Providence is cool, whatever. I was kind of interested in this college town feel. Um, but I remember looking at the board of people who were on their, you know, their culinary team as professors and it would be like 70% of them were CIA grads. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to go to the source. Yep. Yeah. And, um, now I've, I mean, there's Necky also mm-hmm. New England culinary Institute, which I've heard great things about. I think they rebranded. Interesting. They might've changed their name, but, mm. um, I've heard really good things about that school. Um, obviously there's the French culinary Institute, which yep. also rebranded mm-hmm. in New York, which is really good. But, yep. um, I'm super happy that I went to CIA and the professors that I had there were, I mean, really top top notch they were Mm -hmm. second to none they taught me so much and they really taught me um i mean it's like anything else it's as little or as much as you want to learn and um but i learned from them the core ideas around like working hard and and uh accountability in your in your work and your work ethic and um so i'm super grateful i went there i wouldn't trade it for anything in the world i want to make sure that i get to some of the questions that people sent in and maybe you answered it already, but uh, gastronaut Onur says, how did the CIA affect your education in comparison to if you would have studied in any other culinary school? And maybe that 
is something that you've already said, but yeah, I think, um, you know, more important than the place is your drive. And, um, I don't know what would have happened if I went to another culinary school. Maybe it would have been just as successful. Um, but for me, it was, uh, definitely the, it was, a. am so glad I went there. It was a perfect spot. It is kind of this contained campus. And as a result, everything and anything that is going on is around food. And it's like, I mean, now it's even more than was there before. It's every branch of food out there. And, and when I was going, and I'm sure when you went, it was like, oh, you're going to be a chef. And now there's all these other doors opening mm-hmm. where you can go to the CIA and not go and be a chef. Be you a nutritionist be a, or so many people graduate and go be sommeliers or yeah, front yeah, of yeah. house. Yeah, yeah, there's a million different routes to go. And so um, for me, it was about that environment, being really totally immersed. It's like learning a foreign language, you know, mm-hmm. like I was going to a place where the whole town essentially where I was living was all about uh, learning about food. Which is crazy. And do you remember, I mean, what I was going to say was that they led to Gramercy, right? Because that's where you did your externship. Yeah, that's So correct. do you remember, was there a point, and maybe you remember it, maybe you don't, when you decided that you were going to go fine dining Michelin star? Like, was there yeah. a meal that you had? What what happened? Um, I mean, again, it was about this, I want to go to the best. Mm-hmm. I want to go to the best. Yep. I learned about... Um, you know, Michelin stars. I had this professor, Irina Chalmers. I love her. Yep. Um, don't know if you had her. No, I did not. Big fan. Okay. I don't know what the class was. Food history, something Uh like this. Um, anyway, I don't know exactly what pushed me to go there. When, when I was first, you know, there's the internship, uh, before you leave for internship, there's kind of like, there's a lot of stress. It's almost like deciding to go off to college. Like, right, there's right. There's a lot of pressure. It's an experience inside of an experience. Yeah, there's a ton of pressure and there's a lot of expectations and there's a lot of jockeying for the best spot and mm-hmm. people are comparing their locations. And and so there was just this, um, you know, you didn't want to go to a crappy restaurant. Mm-hmm. You wanted to be able to tell people, I went here, I went there. Right. And I was coming from this background where, you know, nine months before, I didn't even know what a Michelin star was. So I definitely didn't know the restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, I just asked my professors recommendations. And um, uh, Chef De Perry also shout out. He yep. made made uh, made a huge impact on my career. Um, and I mean, extremely thankful to Chef De Perry, yeah, De Perry for yep. sure. Yeah, uh, and Chef Clark, mm-hmm. uh, Corky yeah. Clark. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I don't know who recommended it in the end, but one of the chefs um, recommended Gramercy Tavern. And so I started looking into it. Um, I think I my roommate at the time, this guy Robert, um, had he was obsessed with Danny Meyer restaurants and had interned at 11 Madison Park. He sent a question in, by the way. <laughs> he said, uh, he said, did... Micah enjoy living with Robert Pratt in culinary school. Is that what Robert said? <laughs> yeah. Robert. He sent it in on Instagram. Hell yeah, I do. Yeah. So him and I worked at French Laundry together. No way, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Another small world thing. Yeah, I wish yeah. we would have just started the conversation off like that. Yeah, Robert. <laughs> Man, what a maniac. I remember I him coming in late at night. I mean, I was like this pretty sheltered. I mean, I've always been open-minded, but I was pretty sheltered from experiences uh, I, you know, grew up in Alaska, small town sort of thing. And so I had Robert as my first roommate and he would come in and like be headed out to a drag show or something. Yep. And I'd be like, 
wow like, total, what is going total, on right now this is crazy uh but he was very welcoming and um he's super outgoing super nice very very I generous mean, the perfect introduction mm-hmm. to not just uh culinary school but to to new york really in general totally. and totally. Uh, yeah thankful that i was so lucky to have those people around me so um if anybody is kind of like in culinary school looking to get that externship opportunity at someone that's a little bit someone that's a little bit out of their league yeah Professors are a great resource. Yeah. Do you recommend cold emailing? Do you recommend kind of doing that like initial reach out or, or yeah, why not? Else? Yeah. I say why not? You mm-hmm. can always, you. I mean, it's really about does the chef read the email more than anything else? Yeah. They're yeah. busy. They're doing other things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, chefs will tell you be persistent. Do be yep. persistent. Yep. Email them three, four, five, six times um, until they say no. Yep. And if they say no, then stop emailing them. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, just assume they're not getting to it. Um it's, you know, it's easy to take these things all on yourself and internalize them. Um, uh, Robert actually was another person who taught me just like, uh, this is, he was way ahead of me as, as far as the program went. And so seeing him do the research on these places he wanted to intern at, that was a huge leg up for me. Just seeing someone who was in the process of looking for a job, mm-hmm. not looking for an internship and how they were going about it. And, um, and really, it's about knowing that place inside and out before you ever step foot in the front door. Yeah, doing um, your research. Yeah. So important. Um, can you put Austria French Scott on the timeline for us? Because I got a bunch yeah. of questions on it. And once you tell us a little bit about the background of how you got there, I want to uh, do like some rapid fire questions. Yeah, okay. It. So quick background. I decided um, to go work. Um, uh, chef, from, chef Mike from Gramercy had recommended um, that I go check out France. So I went to Mirazur. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, you know, uh, staging around Paris a little bit here and there. Um, and then I went down to Mirazur for a chunk of time and I was planning on staying the whole summer there. Um, and I don't know, half, halfway through or so there was a dinner and I, as I was describing before, I wasn't exactly enjoying it. I was doing, you know, doing well enough and learning some things here and there, but the environment was not for me. And, um, at some point, there was a meal, and it was with Kiki da Costa, yep. uh, Mauro Colagreco, and Massimo Botura. Wowza. And I was put on the team that was supposed to help Massimo's team um, prepare their dishes. And throughout the meal, he just um, was blowing my mind every other minute. You know, like, I would turn around and something else would blow my mind. And this is, you know, I had a fair amount of experience by the time I was in these restaurants. So... Um, it, I wasn't having my mind blown every minute like that. And so, uh, at the end of that night, that meal was over and, uh, his team had to take off very, very quickly. And so it was just the rest of us sitting around talking and I kind of looked at everybody and was like, I'm going to go work for that guy. And they're like, yeah, okay, whatever, like whatever, you know, we'll see you tomorrow. And so I came back the next day and put my notice in and like three days later I was in, uh, I mean, I spent, let's see here. I spent, um, maybe like a week or two traveling around Italy, mostly in Cinque Terre. Um, and, uh, but I worked my way down to Modena and I was in Modena for a day. I didn't tell anybody or call anybody or email anybody. I just went to Modena <laughs> and was walking around town, figured I'd like look into the restaurant and see if I could get a stage or something. And I couldn't find it. It's pretty pretty yep. well hidden yep. in the city. And I finally got to a place where I thought I was looking in the window and I could see that there was definitely a professional kitchen there and 
just watching the cooks, it seemed like they were very, very uh, experienced and it was a really good place. And then uh, one of the doors opened and this guy walked across the street and he looked at me and was like, Micah? And I realized it was one of these guys who'd been uh-huh. at the meal uh, in France So earlier. he remembered you. And yeah, just a couple weeks later. So he remembered me and um, he was like, what the hell are you doing here, man? Different I'm country. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just here checking things out. And I was like, maybe I can eat or something. And he's like, oh, come on in. And so we went into the kitchen and Massimo wasn't there, uh, but he said, come back tomorrow. The sous chef came over and was like, yeah, come back tomorrow and you can talk to Massimo. So I did. And I came back in the next day in the morning and um, Massimo kind of grabbed me by the cheeks and was like, what's going on? Tell me your story. And I told him I was excited about things and he said, okay. And it was like 11 o'clock and uh, lunch service started at noon and he was like, okay, so you'll start tomorrow. um, But in the meantime, come back at noon and we'll sit down and have lunch together and Whoa. like eat the menu. Whoa. And so I was like, I went and I sat on this bench. It was just a couple blocks away and I was so fucking nervous. Uh-huh. I couldn't even breathe. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm just sitting on that bench for that whole hour, just like doing breathing exercises, <laughs> trying to calm myself down. I get into the restaurant and um, did the tasting solo. And he, he came out and talked me through some of the dishes and that kind of stuff. And, um, and then I started working there and I worked there until they closed um, they closed the, for the season at some point. And so, um, I don't know, a little bit over a month or so, something like that. Just staging. So this was before most of us knew of Massimo. So yeah. do you, do you, and I'm going to take it all the way back to that dinner in France. Do you remember when you said that he was blowing your mind with stuff? Yeah. Does anything come to mind where he Hell was yeah. like, yeah, yes. what, what was it? Yeah. What was uh, it? it was his Parmesan water. Uh huh. Yeah. That's what it was. I mean, first of all, Massimo walked into this kitchen that was not his own and immediately it was clear he owned the kitchen. He owned it. Uh, Mauro Colagreco is a massive personality. Um, he's a tough guy. I think he's learned his chops the hard way. And um, he, I mean, it says Mauro Colagreco in like metal writing above the kitchen. Yep. Uh, so like it's his place. And Massimo walked in and um, commanded everyone. And everyone listened to him. And that kind of blew my mind first and foremost. But then there was this moment in the middle of the meal. It was We'd just gone into the courses that were being prepared by him. And it was his cacio pepe risotto dish. And um, there was a question uh, that Mauro asked and said, Hey, like, you know, do you use the rinds in your Parmesan broth? And Massimo was like, hold on a fucking second. And he's like, everyone, come here. Come here. And he pulled everyone out of the dining room. All the front of house staff, the sommeliers, everyone in the back of house, every single person who worked in that restaurant came into the kitchen. At much, like, there was some argument. And finally, everyone came into the kitchen. And we just left all these guests unattended in the dining room. (laughs) And for, like, five or ten minutes, he described to people how he made this Parmesan broth because he was totally he didn't want anyone to think that he was using the bones of the, yeah. of the Parmesan and um, you know how they do it is they take a microplane and they grate the Parmesan. Um, and I don't remember exactly the ratio, but it's basically like a one to one or two to one ratio of cheese to water. So there's microplaning this cheese into the water. They heat it up very gently um, and then they chill it and there's cheese no, still in, they don't no strain stirring it or anything. They wow. just chill it. They put it in the blast chiller. Yep. 
after like an hour, um, the uh, fat rises to the top and solidifies. They pull that off. That's Parmesan butter. Huh. And um, then they let it sit overnight and then they strain off the liquid. And the liquid is water yep. with the aromatics of yep. the Parmesan. And then all that's left is the physical mass, the protein of the cheese. And at that point, you can taste it. And it doesn't taste like anything. And it just blew my mind that this guy had found such a simple way to take this product and break it down into its constituent elements and make something completely different out of it. Uh, I don't know. That Wowza. It was like... It's molecular science, but it's not. Yeah. It's not, uh-huh. you know, it's not that stuff. Uh-huh. And so that really appealed to me. And it just showed a level of thought and care in cooking that I hadn't really um, been aware of before. So some rapid fire Austria questions. I'm not going to ask that one. Tommy wanted to know the biggest thing that you learned at your time at Austria. Maybe there's another one, but that's probably like, yeah, that was, enough. I mean, again, breaking the rules. There's no rules. Yep. yep. Um, what was this one? Oh, um, where, where was it? It said, uh, would he have gotten into Austria, Francescana without the help of culinary school? Clearly not. Like you did that all on your own. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, once you graduate culinary school, it's really about your resume. It's about, um, you know, having the confidence to walk into a place and, and, uh, ask, ask questions and, and be open and, just tell people that you want any job you can get mm-hmm. there. And, you know, the first few days I was just picking herbs. And then uh, a couple of days later I was working a station. And then a couple of days after that I would be breaking down, you know, uh, partridges and that kind of stuff. And by the end of it I was able to plate stuff at the pass and work this station, work that station. And it's like if I just walked in there and said, hey, I want this job, Maybe I would have not gotten anything, but walking in there and saying, hey, I'm just really excited about what you guys are doing. I'm a blank slate. I'm a pair of hands, and I'm here for as long as you want me to be. Um, It's hard to say no to that. Somebody asked, uh, sorry, Unspoken Bazinga said, uh, no, sorry, a different person. Uh, Vincent HNG wanted to know if you had any expectations, and I think that is a very, like, that insight is very, very important that, like, Maybe you had expectations because like, like you mentioned, you had kind of plateaued, you know what I mean? At a certain point and you wanted, you wanted to, to, to learn new things and get a new environment and learn from new people. But I think, like you said, like if you had gone in there saying, I'm going to be the next sous chef of this place, you would have had a totally different experience Yeah, for better or for worse. Yeah. Totally different experience. And in a place like Osteria Francescana, which is not like most restaurants in that, Mm -hmm. Almost every, when I arrived there, I don't know how it is today, but almost everyone who was working there had been working, not just there, but had been working together as a team for like four, five, six years minimum. That's very rare. (laughs) And they were really a family. Uh And so I don't think they were looking for anyone to come in there and tell them how to do things. Mm -hmm. That was John Somming actually who asked that question. I want to make sure shout outs go to the right place. Um, Maybe... The reason I want to ask this now is because it was probably in this place in the timeline. Um, Chef Cliff Smith wants to know what your most rewarding dining experience has been. My most rewarding dining experience. Maybe it's well, like it taught you the most about food or... Yeah, it's a great, great question. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, there's a place. Let's go take it way back. Um, I was 19 probably. I was at this restaurant, Maroni Umabachi. I don't know if it's still Whoa. around. 
it's in Ginza in Tokyo. Yep. And um, I was brought there by a friend, and I had no idea what the restaurant was. It was just I knew it was going to be a good a good place, but that was pretty much all I knew. And um, it was in this Tokyo high rise building. It was on some floor way up high, and I'd never even really been in a building like this. And um, so again, kind of a fish out of water and got off the elevator, walked down the hallway, opened a door and all of a sudden there's a beautiful restaurant there. And that beautiful restaurant had, you know, 12 seats at most. And uh, you sit down at the bar, there's three of us. And he started, the chef who was there started cooking for us. And he had an oven and a six burner stove. And that was the only cooking things that I can remember. Wow. And he served me a raw eggplant dish and it was raw eggplant with prosciutto and dill weird yeah doesn't sound great and i ate that and i like basically started crying and uh it just i think you know all of my time in japan and in working kaiseki cuisine um really really did affect me but i think that that was a moment when i realized the difference that a single ingredient of incredible high quality, which was this eggplant, which is, I don't know the variety, but it's a specific variety, which is grown to be eaten raw. Hmm. And I had never heard of that before or since really. Sure. And, um, it was profound. Just, just, um, that it so simple, three ingredients. I mean, it was literally three ingredients. Mm-hmm. It wasn't one of those things where it's three ingredients on the menu, but there's 26 ingredients inside totally. of them. There were three ingredients in this dish and, um, and it really blew my mind. And I think all of that, that entire meal was that way. Um, but, but that's the dish. That was the first dish that it really hit me. Cool. So I would say that meal. I'm going to fast forward semi till now, but I, I I know a little bit of the backstory of you starting Equilibrium. Yeah, there you go. Crack that open. I'm gonna so I'm gonna give a little primer. We met on this farm. There was a friend of ours who um, I met at a dinner party with the Seattle editor of Eater, actually. And I don't know how Molly knew Adam, but somehow Adam was uh, involved with this dinner party. He's not the edit- editor at Eater anymore. Cheers. And uh, the this is the first time we've had hard alcohol on the podcast. Really? So thank you. Yeah, I'm glad I can. I've, I, I believe I did a beer once upon a time, <clears throat> but this is the first hard alcohol. What are we drinking? Um, yeah, shout out to Bullet Bourbon. Bullet this Bourbon. Is, you know, it's not local, which is normally where I head. But, <laughs> um, but it is a great standby. Yep. Um, and I drink it at almost all of my meals. Fantastic. So treat okay. this like a meal. Good enough. So... This woman is there, and, and my my girlfriend, Anna, is talking about, because I cooked something, and someone was like, oh, who made the blank? And yeah. my girlfriend was like, oh, Justin did. He's, he cooks all over the city. And she's like, oh, uh, I work at a farm. You need to meet my friend Micah. So yeah. that's where we met. Yeah. And then we ended up doing uh, two dinners, one in 2017, one in 2018, yeah. on the farm, which is amazing. You can go in as deep or as shallow as you want. What I'm curious about and the advice that I'm seeking to get is what you would say to someone who wants to do something unconventional because it's not that like me starting a podcast, you starting, you helping to start a farm, like the natural path for people like us is to look for restaurant investors, 
right? Mm. Like at this point, after all the experience, all the shit that we went through, the culinary mm-hmm. school, the mm-hmm. becoming a manager in a kitchen, like all of it leads, the next logical step is go be an executive chef somewhere, cook your face off and try to find an investor for your next fine dining restaurant. Yeah, that's the path. And so w- what would you say to someone who wants to do something a little unconventional from your experience? Yeah, well, I would say... Um, Don't be fooled into thinking there's only one path. That's what I thought. I thought thought that was my option. I thought that I was going to open a restaurant uh, at some point. And um, then I looked at it and was like, that shit doesn't make money. Like, even if I'm successful, even if it really succeeds in a high-end restaurant, what, your margin's 3 to 5%? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, If, If you're good... Yeah. If you can manage to outlast the initial 24-month hype of you yeah. opening. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Crazy. And so to me, um, my particular passion, I, I would say find out what your passion is because it's not just cooking food. There's got to be an angle to it. And um, for me, it's community. And so I asked myself, how can I have the greatest impact on my community? And it's not, I decided that for me and my style, it wasn't through opening a restaurant. And so that forced me to try and find something else. And I had this skill set, which was cooking. So I knew I wanted to use that. Um, And I had this passion for food and sharing that experience with people. So I knew I wanted to continue that. And I think what I realized in this journey, which I'm only a few steps down the road of, um, is there are an infinite number of doors and all you have to do is find them and open them. And there are a whole lot of other business ideas that I haven't even come up with uh, or considered or that no one's even come up with or considered that are going to be popular in 10 or 20 or 30 years. Like who knows what the world is going to look like. And uh, I mean, in the 1980s where chefs saying, oh yeah, I'm sure in 30 years people will be making food, uh, making money doing podcasts about food. Like, no, they didn't know what a podcast was. They didn't know what the internet was. They didn't know any of that stuff. So like, who knows what the future holds? I think the idea is to figure out what your passion is and, um, and have an open mind about it. You know, I mean, um, it, I think private chefing to me was like my first brush with, being open-minded maybe even before that i worked at a i worked for hilton for a hot minute Mm -hmm. um and just want i went there because i wanted to learn about the logistics of how do you run an organization and uh, it ended up being a good experience for me actually um i was pretty trepidatious about it at first but ended up being a good experience and i think that was my first brush with opening up to okay it's not just working in mission starred restaurants and just really powerful by the way like with the first time you see that like oh there's another way yeah because like man you spend enough time on that hamster wheel like you you forget what like asphalt feels like you know what i mean like to have an open road and like all you're thinking about is okay um so how am i two michelin star what i want one michelin star restaurant three michelin star Uh restaurant how am i get there who am i to work you know it's like working the dollar signs figuring it out and Mm -hmm. um and you just take a break and you realize i mean i have a friend uh, Micah who does uh, he's doing food prep business or you know uh, people who are starting up beverage companies and people who are um, you know doing the corporate stuff uh, and I mean this is open-minded by 
some definition like five years ago, but it's not even open-minded by today's definition. Like there are eco retreats out there where people are spending, um, you know, I don't know the names of any of these places off the top of my head, but I mean, there's a place in Oregon where you can go and you can stay there for a week at a time. And it's basically a nudist colony and they cook everything locally from the food (laughs) right there. And like, that sounds like a pretty cool job. Yeah. You know, like that sounds cool. I would Uh do that. Uh Um, so I just, and, and then there's, now with the social media and the internet and uh, podcasting and videos, it's like totally um, the reach has never been larger. You can, I mean, we've never been able to do more um, and there's never been more doors open to us. There's so much money flowing into mm-hmm. this space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we are in a renaissance right now. Totally. And I mean, especially with, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I might go too far, but it's this idea of like, okay, we were in uh, an economy where we had to create goods and now we're in a service economy. Mm-hmm. And like, I think we're transitioning out of this tra- this traditional service economy. And like, I don't know what the future holds exactly, um, but it certainly is more wide open. And I think, I hope more democratic than what we've been experiencing. The thing that's fascinating to me is to see the fact that we are almost at the end and I've mentioned this before on the show of the 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 standalone chef with the one restaurant. Yeah. I think it's become a fallacy. I think not only can you have mm. careers inside of your career, yeah, but it's also like it's no longer the idea of Paul Bocuse or like Ferdinand Poir and La Pyramid. Yeah. Like that's his legacy. It's like yeah. one chef, one restaurant. Yeah. Right. Now it's gonna be I mean, we see it with Daniel Hume and Will Gadara. You know what I mean? Like two people, two very different skill sets. Yeah. You see some of these restaurants that are popping up that are, you know, a, uh, <laughs> there was one that was on, was it food and wine or Bon Appetit's list this year with a, a three equal part chef owners. They yeah. all had 33% of the yeah. business, you know, yeah. like I've got some friends who are doing it's four or five way uh-huh, equal, equal uh-huh. ownership. Yeah. And it's like one of the guys is a billionaire and the other guys are chefs. Totally. It's like, why? Like in, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago or three years ago, like why would they have equal ownership? Uh-huh. It doesn't make any sense. Yep. Cause the chef is the star, but not anymore. The, the restaurant that I worked at in Norway was like that when they opened, yeah. it was two chefs, a bartender, some guy who was like big into design and yeah. then a musician. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, how is that going to work? But it did, Yeah. but it did. And they're still running. Um, full I, disclosure though. Um, most of those people got bought out eventually. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's great to have that be the starting point. And it sometimes hashes. Like, I don't want any, everybody to think that like, just because you start with five people, you have to like keep those five people around forever. Cause but it's way better to be a person who starts with 33% ownership and then gets bought out. than totally. it is to be a guy who starts with nothing uh-huh. and goes to another job later on. Right. Right. Um, so for sure, I think that's benefit, but I think, it's this it's this uh, culmination uh, and this combination of what used to be lifestyle uh-huh. and food, which are now being married. Right. Um, and I see that, I mean, especially with what mm-hmm. you're talking about, the Make It Nice, yep. Will Gadara yep. and, and uh, Daniel Hume, like that seems to be the direction they're going. They're building a lifestyle mm-hmm. brand that's mm-hmm. centered. I mean, I'm putting words in their mouth by sure. saying that, but that's how I see it. It's a lifestyle brand with food as a huge pillar of importance in their in their lifestyle totally yeah you touched on something when i initiated this question where you gave the advice to find what that passion is yeah 
do it. What are some exercises that you would suggest people to like? Is it keep asking why until you get down to that nugget? Is it uh, like take take some fancy drugs? Like what what is the what is that process yeah. like? Uh, I think it's probably different for everyone, but. Um, for me, it's been a combination of those yeah, things. Yeah. yeah, it's been a combination of not fancy drugs, but uh-huh. old school drugs. Uh-huh. Um, it's been a combination of that combined with, um, you know, self-help and visualization stuff. Um, I never had any interest in the self-help world, mm-hmm. um, but I think as we're seeing now, it's coming back um, into a sort of vogue. Um, I'm a big fan of I Am That. Okay. Which is my kind of uh, Bible for, Interesting. for my personal yeah, yeah, self. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check it out, guys. Yep. I am that. Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. Whoa. Uh, he's my guru. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, check it out. Um, that to me is just, it's it's constantly pointing you with the question of who are you? Why are you here? Um, what do you want to spend your time doing? Because this is your life. And um, it's not worth fucking around and doing something you don't want no to way. do. No way. So... I think um, I've tried and started, uh, tried to start and failed um, it several different ideas. And honestly, each one of them has been bringing me closer to what is important to me and what matters. And so, um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. It totally does. Yeah. It totally does. Because like you said, one, it's different for everyone. Yeah. But also, like, it, it, it doesn't have to be this thing where like there's so much practicality to doing so because but the the important thing that I hopefully want people to take away from is you went out there as a blank slate got a bunch of experience maybe got your ass kicked yeah. saw parts of the Definitely world that were kicked. yeah like put yourself outside of your comfort zone yeah. like you did all these prerequisites and then you attempted to find your passion because yeah. i feel like sometimes when you ask those questions life will kind of like give you some of these ideas yeah. and if you've experienced them before you can check the box you know what i mean like uh you know like if you see like oh well i am really passionate about uh seeing more of the world and it's like if you've done that already you can kind of like check that off the list and yeah. it, it kind of like provides a little bit of clarity yeah as opposed to just going in blank and just being like i need to find my passion but i've never left my hometown yeah yeah that, i mean you can't put too much pressure on yourself no way. and say, Hey, like, I, I mean, I think this happens to kids all the time. You're in high school and you're like, I mean, I have nieces and nephews who are in this situation right now. And you can just see the look in their eye when you're like, yo, what are you going to do? What are you thinking about? And they're like, uh, <laughs> so harmful. And, and they try and say something. They try and tell you what they're going to do. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, don't even try. Like, just go out there, do some shit. And yeah. like, you can't know what's going to happen in five years, mm-hmm. let alone longer. And so, I mean, I, yeah, I'm really grateful for the way things unfolded. The entire time I thought I was chasing my passion mm-hmm. and, and your passion changes and it evolves and it, you, you redefine it. And, and it's about, for me, it's been about going with that flow and and finding you know it's not to say you do it's easy you just do what you're actually excited to do um because i don't i mean like i said you have to do this shit every day of your life so you better enjoy it there was a tangent question that i was going to ask but somebody else asked and this is from mr lewis mckinnon i was going to ask if you miss 
being on the line, being like in these restaurant yes. environments. But he yeah. asks, what was slash is your favorite section to work on in the kitchen? And maybe it's one of yeah. the same. But um, Well, first of all, I do miss it. Um, I was just talking to uh, Shiva, my fiance today. Um, and I was like, we're, I was dropping her off. She's going up to visit her family. And I was like, you know, I think... I think I might take like just a kitchen job, like two to three days a week, you know, <laughs> yep. just like, just because it'd be kind of fun, uh-huh. like do this, whatever, not, not really think about, uh, you know, the larger picture when I'm doing that stuff, it'll just be kind of like a Zen thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's pretty attractive. I have always, you know, I'll, I have a number of chefs in the area who are friends and, and, you know, every once in a while, once in a while, one will drop me a line and be like, Hey man, so-and-so I don't have anybody like, can you come work a day or two or a week? Yep. And, uh, I try and say yes as often as I can. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I always love getting back into the kitchen. I definitely miss, uh, being on the line mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, again, it's like a pro and con. Yep. Um, my favorite place or my favorite station to work, um, I mean, charcuterie mm-hmm. was the place that I really found I enjoyed the most. Um, I love being on the hotline, um, banging out dishes and, and that kind of stuff and that pressure. I mean, I loved, um, the more responsibility, the better for me. Yep. So like at the, you know, being at the end of the line where you're managing just a few people under you to accomplish a series of things that need to be done so that your plates can go out on time. You know, yep. if you have a roast, an entremet and an app person, um, th- that's, I loved being that roast person who's mm-hmm. like got all the stuff in your head. You got to totally. memorize it. There's a lot of pressure to do that. Um, I really, really, really enjoyed that. That was always something I liked, but, um, charcuterie was like a whole nother world for me. Mm-hmm. It was slowing down. Yeah, You're forced to think a little more. You are thinking there's a creative element when you're coming up with recipes that is very different from creating a dish. Um, there's you know, uh, the measurements. I never mm-hmm. really measured anything until mm-hmm. I started doing charcuterie. And then it was for, like baking for cooks. I got obsessed with the gram, uh-huh. you know, it's like, uh-huh. man, I need a 10th of a gram scale yep. because I want to know exactly how much mace I'm putting into this. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, you so have to I be think patient too, what, what's that? Cause you don't, you have to be patient yeah, as well. Man, you can't it days taste to it. make something totally and, uh, or months. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that to me was where I really found, uh, found myself was making charcuterie. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, the I mean, Garmanger, right? The guardian of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Like you're supposed to be protecting from waste. Yep. And I really that really really resonated with me. All the things I've said, you know, up to now, I think that they it seems it makes sense that should you know resonate with me, and it did. And I hadn't really been in a position where I was managing. Um, you know, the needs of an entire restaurant's meat supply yep. until I got to charcuterie. And you really have to look at the big picture instead of just being the line cook who's like, where's my fucking filet? Like, why didn't the butchers butcher it? Or like, why isn't there enough for me to butcher? Or whatever the question is, depending on your place. Like, totally. it's like, oh, this is why. Uh-huh. Like, I know why, because I know the people who are bringing us the pigs and I know what's going on and why I'm going to break the pig down differently so I can get it something to be on the menu tonight totally okay let's give a little bit of light there um so the 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 place i want to go into now now that everybody has had a bunch of your background a bunch of insight into like who you are where your experience comes from where your mindset's at i want to know about your new project and what you can and cannot disclose me and kind of like where your head's at 
maybe I mean, like you said, it could be something where you take two and a half years off yep. and kind of like find what that is, and you get some experience, and you meet somebody working somewhere who something happens. Like I know that feeling. Yeah. But like, what's next for Mike or Maori? Yeah. Um, I'm I'm not taking time off and waiting to meet the right person to do something with. Um, I've tried that. Yep. And um, and I think that that can work and and whatever. Uh, that's a great path. Um, now I'm forging ahead. I know what I'm passionate about, and um, and that is bringing sustainable and local food to the community in a real way, in a real way that is, you know, I want it to be as easy for people to eat sustainably and locally year round as it is to go to McDonald's. And so I'm going to make some moves. I'm making moves to make that a reality in my own small way and hopefully in my own big way. How much can I probe here? Is it, is it a, you can probe as much as you want. We'll see what I answer. Is it a, is it a, is it, 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 is it a restaurant space? Is it partnering with local farms is, so I guess my first question is what would be an ideal day in the life for you once this, you know, of course gets up and rolling? Cause at the start you're going to wear all the different hats and whatever. Say you've, ideal you've day. made those first initial hires. Yeah. What does an ideal day in the life look like for you? Um, so I think an ideal day in the life means, um, uh, I mean, to me, variety is still the yep. spice of life. Yep. So hopefully my days are not always the same. I love having a sense of routine and regimen, um, but I don't want it to be the same every day of the year. And so um, I want my life to match the seasons um, to some respect. Um, I, you know, I think that there will be times when I'm hopefully traveling times when I'm at home. I want that home to be the Pacific Northwest. Yep. Um, and, uh, I mean, I want to be in a place that's growing the food that I'm cooking. Um, I do not want to have a restaurant. Um, I'm, I want to be serving people food. Mm-hmm. I want to be feeding people and I don't want to have a restaurant. And so I'm kind of trying to figure out what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What is, I mean, Restaurants have only been around, one of my favorite things to say is restaurants have only been around for a couple hundred years. And before that, people ate in a lot of other ways. And I think that this, the restaurant thing is cool and I think it's great. And I think it will survive for a very, very, very long time. But I do not think it's the only way for people to get food. It's not for you. Yeah. And so I want to break out of that a little bit. Um, But also I'm excited about education. So uh, I, I, just kind of totally sidestepped your question, which was a day in the life and mm-hmm. day in the life to me is being able to interact with people from the community is actual physical cooking Yep, is being around uh, nature and um, is having a sense of peace. I think that it's important for us to build lives that support our endeavors and strengthen us. And so I'm trying to give myself that foundation and um so that's the day in the life yeah it's perfect and to go back to what you were saying it's totally why we i think hit it off so well and why we can continue to have conversations because that's been my life for the past two years is how do i continue to cook for people do this thing that i'm so immensely passionate about yeah and also skilled at at least like yeah from how we i've seen you cook yeah Yeah. and i've seen you cook right like there's there's but to think about 
the way so the way I think about it is being a freestyle rapper yeah. or like you know being <laughs> a performing artist. Yeah. How great is it to know that? And I know there's so much else that goes along with it, but how great is it to know that all you have to do is basically show up and do your thing on stage? Yeah. And like, yeah, re- there's a there's a there's a artist manager and someone that manages the tour and all these other things get taken care of and you get relied on to do the thing that you do best. Yeah, that's an incredible experience. It doesn't exist in the chef realm. No. Right. Like if you no. become the chef of a restaurant, you've basically signed your own death warrant as yeah. far as like you cooking on the daily well let's not say that yeah maybe lots of chefs have different that's have true lives, but that's but true yes i that's, still agree mm-hmm, with you mm-hmm. <laughs> and i just think that uh who because like you said it's going to be different for everyone and everyone. it's like everyone. um how 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 involved are you in the community sustainability yep. do you have your own farm yep. do you do media like that's what i'm trying to focus on yeah to be that other arm um yeah it's just a different and i guess I'm very, very excited to see where things go. I'm not going to... Is there anything else that you want to kind of share or put out there into the ether of like something that's on your mind? I mean, I think... Um, yeah, media is yep. is a big part of, I think, the future. We have to... It's like you can't... I mean, I think high-end cuisine, um, it, there's always been the issue of how do you meet where do you meet people at? Yep. Like, where do you meet people who aren't familiar with high-end cuisine? Are you only cooking for the 0.01%? And, you know, places that are celebrated around the world ultimately are only cooking for a handful of people. And it's an incestuous group of people who are all hitting the same restaurants. And I'm very lucky to be a member of that incestuous family. But um, what about everybody else? Yep. And, like, how do you make those bigger impacts and we see it even with Massimo Bottura right opening this little pasta shop in Naples I feel Uh, like it might be Naples it might be I don't know if we're thinking of the same place he has a smaller place in Modena that does like it does some smaller yeah it does smaller Mm -hmm. pasta stuff it does pizza he was doing something I saw and it's like a maybe it's a pop-up but basically it's like super cheap pasta meals mm-hmm. you know i mean oh i know what you're talking about bucks, i don't know where it is for a few bucks i think it's yep. in i thought it, maybe florence maybe naples somewhere hmm. anyway um everyone is asking the same question yep. the question is how do we get to everybody else how and do you not, scale it's not how do we make money off of everyone totally. else as much as it's Reach. how do we make a difference mm. in and i mean having been in uh, you know, the, the, you know, there's Osteria Francescana and then there's like a, um, I don't know, an apartment nearby mm-hmm. where the chefs can go or the, the cooks can go and you can shower and you can, they have a huge library of books and that's where they're, uh, there's some other stuff that they mm-hmm. do other things there. Yep. And, um, and, um, so, uh, how do you, how do you reach out to, the rest of the people that you're already, you know, I mean, you're passionate about these things. We'd have these conversations in this space. We'd be asking ourselves, asking ourselves all the time, you know, how do we take this beyond the hundred people who can book in this month yep. or or whatever? Um, and to me, a huge part of that is social social media or the internet or uh, again these videos or podcasting. I think that that's really part of the story of how we bring the whole community up. I'm a big fan of the saying, um, uh, what is it? 
high tide raises all boats yep, or yep, something along those lines. You absolutely. know, it's raising, like, yeah, raising tide raise height. Yeah, whatever. That, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, yep. it's not about. Um, it's not just about building yourself up. It's about mm-hmm. building a healthier community, which will make your business healthier and your family healthier and your life. And so, um, yeah, I think at the core of it is you have an idea and you want to share that idea. Exactly. The current exactly. state of how society is succinctly right now, said. The, 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 well, the, the 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 current state of society is that ideas get shared through the internet. Yes. Sometimes it's on social media. Yes. The internet facilitates that. Yeah. It's the hive mind. Totally. And with what we do, the thing that gets, ex- the idea is best experienced with all five senses in a perfect yes. world. Yes. Right? Exactly. You can, you can sit and you can touch exactly. and taste and see and smell and whatever. A dish. The thing that we have to spread ideas that can fill the maximum amount of those five senses is video, mm. right? Because it's like you can see it and you can hear it. That's pretty much all. You, like you can't yeah. touch it, smell it, or taste it. Yeah. But that's but as I close mean, as we can get right now. If you go and ask your neighbor, hey, you want to come to dinner? Uh-huh. They're going to say no. Yep. yep. So you can't even, you totally. know, you can't even do that. Totally. So I just think that's an interesting point. And yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, this might get weird. You have multiple interests outside of food and sustainability. Oh, this question. And I'd love to riff on it for a little bit. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, whether it's us prepping together yeah. or doing a dinner or, you know, like, and so many people do it, right? Like, that's the classic prep talk when you're standing over a big case of fava beans yeah. as you start talking about other weird stuff. Yeah. So there's a couple um, questions. Usually relationships or weird shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, both. Yeah, both. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a couple questions. Well, they're not even questions. They're just topics that I want to chat through that we're both interested on. Yeah. Are we alone in the universe, <laughs> Mike and Maori? <laughs> Are we alone in the universe? Yeah. Are we, as humans on planet Earth, the only ones here? I take I take huge issue with the concept that we are not alone. Uh-huh. Um or that rather that we are alone. I I just can't I think that we've talked about this a yep. lot. Yeah. I think um for me there's two ways to look at it. Either life is abundant or life is not. Mhm. And Everything that I have witnessed in my life shows me not only that life is abundant, it is unbelievably abundant and complex and it's folded into itself into different ways and smaller and smaller and bigger and bigger. And uh, I mean, I just think about the research that goes on about our gut. Yeah. Right. Like how many bacteria are thriving inside of our gut? How many bacteria are thriving in our skin? You know, I've seen you know, statistics, I don't know how true they are, but basically like more of the cells on our body are not ours than are ours. Interesting. And they're just along for the ride. We're, yeah. It's like, I think about that a lot. Uh And so I also, we know that the universe is basically all made up of the same stuff. Mm -hmm. And we're supposed to believe that, in one teeny tiny corner in a random place, it all worked out in the right way when, I mean, it's like if you, I mean, I think the universe is a, is a garden, yep. you know, yep. I think that there's so much out there. I just can't even imagine it any other way mm-hmm. because why are we, we're not special. Yeah. And like, 
you know, I think in food has has illuminated this for me. Sure. I think slaughtering animals has illuminated uh-huh. this for me. Like life is is there. It's it's life, like taking life. It I mean, um it seems pretty I think you know, if anything, it's a, it's like an infection, you know, mm-hmm. or I don't know what it is. It's, it's incredibly not, resilient. It's certainly resilient. Right? Like the fact that the first organisms came about when the earth was not even close to habitable for us. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. Like the yeah, fact yeah. that it's that like happened. a billion or two billion years mm-hmm. after the creation of the earth, that's yep. when life started. Yep. And it's like, man, totally. And so I guess. Well, hold on here. Yeah. Another thing is. I, you know, they send these spaceships to Mars, yep. right? Yep. They sterilize them because uh-huh. they don't want to contaminate Mars with foreign bacteria from Earth. And it's like, hold on. So the bacteria from Earth can survive on Mars? Uh-huh. Is that what that means? Yep. Like, yep. why are we caring about sterilizing and protecting these environments around space from our life form if they can't survive there? Yep. And so I just think... You know, clearly scientists believe that life can survive in mm-hmm. these places. And um, and the amount of time that passes, it seems like a virtual certainty totally. to me. I so. mean, the math. The math yeah. is just like mind Not a mathematician, clear. but I can tell yep. it makes sense. Yep, yeah, totally. The other thing that, that is semi on, on topic and on trend, and I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on it, is the no-kill meat or the grown protein oh, sources, yeah. artificial meat. This and is good. This is back to part of the point that I brought up earlier where, you know, if, if vegans were, were to take over the world and everybody became vegan, we would need so much space. And the opposite goes with hunters. All the animals would die. The idea that once, whether you call it lab-grown meat or whatever you want to call it, can hit scale, what then will we do what does that with mean? all of these livestock animals? And that's just an interesting, maybe rhetorical question. But what is your thought Are, it, it, when it hits a certain point? Like, what is that point when you would serve switch. it on your tasting menu? You switch know what I mean? Over. Yeah. Um, so I think the point at which I would switch it over. First of all, the point at which I switch it over is a super complex question. Mm-hmm. And I can't even imagine what would happen for me to be okay with that. Um I mean, I think I'm a little old-fashioned in that we know it's safe to eat meat from an animal. Yep. Because we've been doing it since we were human. Sure. We cannot understand or fathom the effects of introducing lab-grown food, into meat or otherwise, into our diets. Uh, and it's not to say I won't start eating them or start serving them on my menu. Um, but that's the question I'm going to be asking myself every bit of the way is like, what will the ramifications of this action be like? What's going to happen because of this? Not now, but in a generation or 10 generations. Totally. Um, I think, um, you know, I'm a little bit of a sci-fi freak. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there's nothing truly wrong with lab grown meat or, or genetically modified organisms. Um, they get a bad rap. We could go into that, but um, but they get a bad rap and mostly unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more about greed and corporate stuff. Yeah. Um, I think that lab-grown meat is one of those things that people will likely 
tout as being like a savior. Yep. And I think a main question to look at, and maybe this is the answer, is when I would start considering to use it, is when it's uh, from an energy perspective more efficient. Right. When it takes right. less energy to grow a pound of lab meat than mm-hmm. it does to grow a pound of meat on a cow. I understand. Maybe that's when. Yep. Because that's that the seems point. Yep. that seems smart. Yep. Because um, also speaking about math, that shit is crazy. Like the amount of water and grains and energy and gasoline it takes to ship yeah. and like E-local. the electricity don't to keep, do that shit yeah yeah like the electricity that it has to keep the plant running like yeah. all that math the amount of energy required to produce a pound of meat is mind staggeringly bad yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 i mean it is and at the same time you can go out and find a pound squirrel mm-hmm. which took zero of any of those yep. things yeah so like it's not about producing a pound of meat it's how we're doing it right and it's really nuts right you know like there's how many hundreds and thousands of pounds of birds mm-hmm. in this neighborhood yep and yep. they didn't need gasoline totally in order to get that size totally. and so it's so interesting yeah so the point that comes to my mind and the, the i've never heard of that argument before and i'm glad you brought it up but the point that i wanted to make was Maybe back when uh, like artificial sweeteners or like aspartame came to yeah. be, right? Yeah. And it was probably the same conversation. Like, this is the savior. We don't yeah. have to use sugar anymore. Yeah. Come I'm, to find out, causes a bunch of problems down the line. Yeah. And it's like, man, if you opened a bakery where all your <laughs> baked goods were sweetened with aspartame back in the day, you probably do not feel great. Yeah, you're feeling you bad. Know? Yeah. yeah. So uh, if you're still alive. Yeah. Like, that's <laughs> a very interesting moral question that I haven't really thought of is like, what if we discover down the line that there was something that got tweaked when that stem cell interacts with your cells and it encourages cancer growth? You know what I mean? Yes. Crazy questions. So I'm a firm believer that of two things. One thing is I'm a firm believer that humans can find a whole lot of different ways to survive. Yep. And I'm, you know, I correlate transhumanism to veganism i don't know if that's normal interesting i think that's a fair comparison in my mind only because you're taking something that is part of the human condition and you're removing it Mm -hmm. um, which to me seems like transhumanism yep um on the other hand uh not on the other hand another thing that i firmly believe in is that humans can eat uh, with the carrying capacity of our planet, I firmly believe that humans can conti- can continue to eat meat and vegetables, not the way we are, but that they can continue to eat meat and vegetables in a in a sustainable manner for a long time. I think that if we were using our land effectively and we were actually planning and how we uh, what we're growing and who's growing what and how we're trading things, um, I think that I mean. I think that it could work right now. We have a system which only rewards profit. And so there's no one at the top who's saying, Hey, hold on a second. That doesn't exactly make sense. Cause you guys are producing what they're producing. Like no one's doing that. Or even like educating people about how to use more of it or like yeah. not make it go to waste. Yeah. Like, I mean the waste. Exactly. Yeah, like we're can trying you imagine? to feed people and uh-huh. it's like, we're throwing away half. Mm-hmm. I mean, conservative estimates are like uh-huh. 30%, yep. but realistically it's probably more than half mm-hmm. of everything that's grown in the United States is thrown away. Bonkers. 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 It's crazy. Yeah. Is there another topic that we should get into while we're on the the riff train right now of like what 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 what's what what's an obsession of yours that I don't know, maybe we haven't talked about while prepping before. I mean, 
I'm sure we've covered them almost all while prepping, but mm-hmm. I think uh, a train and obsession that I'm on right now is is really about um, um, personal agency and um, you know I really think that what's going on right now in the world is kind of like a little bit of a uh, an obsession or an illness i think we'll look back on this time and say that we were playing with a toy we didn't understand yeah you know it's like i think technology uh, technology i guess is really where i'm going but technology i think is a tool Mm -hmm. and we underestimate its power over and over again and i think that you know I think a lot about raising my kids because I'm at the age and engaged now where I'm like really thinking about this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, I plan on at this moment and anything could change, but at this moment I plan on raising my kids with the understanding that technology, like a cell phone is like a machine gun, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, like it literally is as dangerous. Totally. You can, you can say the wrong thing to someone and they will hurt themselves. Mm -hmm. And, that is crazy. That is an insane amount of power to put in the hands of every man, woman, and child everywhere. Totally. Unchecked. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that this is a common theme that I think about a lot. And I'm trying to step away from and recognize that technology is a tool and we have to be, we have to take ownership and responsibility for how we're using it. I think it's fascinating that we are going to carry that responsibility i don't think we're the only ones that are sitting in this apartment and and thinking about those ideas yeah because to be real the generation before this apartment yeah exactly (laughs) to be real the the generation before us kind of got blindsided by technology totally you know what i mean totally it's like they were not equipped with gun safety control do you know what i mean when those machine guns got handed over it was not even close yeah but and this is back to your um you know, like can do real harm to people. The fact, the fact of the matter is there's nothing in society. I mean, there's a couple things, but there's nothing in society preventing someone from getting in their car and driving through Westlake right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I'm in the firm camp that people are more or less good at its core. And so it's like, regardless of the level of power that gets maybe unwittingly handed to human beings sometimes. Yeah. It usually comes out pretty okay. I agree. I think we are benign. Yep. Yep. But I think our our negative uh, the the most of the reactions or the, the the things that happen as a result of people it's not intentionally bad. It's unintended consequences. Totally. And totally. I think that that's what we have to take more responsibility for. It's so interesting. It happens when we get too disconnected, and I think like it's going to flip the other way when we get a little bit too connected. Hearing yeah. about people that are developing technology that lets us read each other's thoughts faster than we can audibly communicate it. So, do you believe that's coming? Um, do you believe? I'm, in- I need to see it. Like, yeah. I need to. It's it's kind of like um, if you were to. There's that clip that goes viral every once in a while of the the late the the three news hosts when someone asks them to cover the internet the first time the internet was ever like part of a breaking news kind of thing. I haven't seen this. It's like, it's, it's three newscasters. It's like two women and a, and a guy. Yeah. And <laughs> the guy knows a little bit about it, but the two women are like completely clueless. Yeah. And they're asking each other questions on the news. They're like, so this internet thing, what is it? It's just like you share ideas with each other. Like you can send text based messages 
over this network of interconnected devices yeah and it's like the naivete and this is like in the mid i'm pretty sure it's like in the mid 90s yeah we or were like alive. late 80s yeah it's not that far long away yeah and so it's like it i like feel like 12 years before the iphone totally totally so like to hear me pontificate on it is gonna seem a little bit like that interview yeah when exactly. it comes to be when it's like well we could i mean like think about the amount of information that gets transmitted when you have to give someone directions somewhere and then think about how much actual, I mean, I guess you would call it digital data that is. Yeah. And how much of that time gets wasted just uh, like the speed at which I can talk. Yes. And the speed at which you can understand. Yeah. Um, what if sending an image of a map of how to get from here to Spokane was as fast as your doctor hitting the your knee with the reflex thing? Yeah. And your your foot kicks out. Like, what if that was the speed at which you need to take this turn and that turn, and like it became a clear thing in your head where you can remember it? That is a little bit interesting. So you think that's going to happen? I think it isn't far away, but yeah. I don't know. I don't necessarily know. I'm in the firm camp that I would. I don't fear technology at all. Yeah. I would put a chip in my body. Like yeah. if someone said, um, you can plant something in yourself that gives you your a bunch of health data. It would. Um, track your levels of different hormones yeah hormones or like your and this is how your motivation is today and man you just came out a really sketchy interaction with someone this is this is what your your body's running on right now yeah um and then this is what you can do to to remedy that i mean you just went into fight or flight you need to come out of it totally i wear this ring that tracks my sleep and it tracks my heart rate and where's it from so it's from aura it's a company called aura o-u-r-a yeah and um yeah like i'm I love using this yeah. because it's not in my way, right? Yeah. Like it's not a wrist. It's yeah. not giving me unnecessary notifications that I don't want. Yeah. And it only gives me information that I'm interested in. And yeah. so it's like, I have no fear of technology. I'm yeah. embracing it with open arms, but I agree. Uh, I agree. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, I, I, and I'm fascinated to see where it goes, but yeah. again, problems that people way smarter than me are working on. So, yeah, I, I just want the technology to be respectful like I, I, I think that that's I, I think there's a TED talk out there on this, but it's this idea that one thing technology has never been taught is respect. Yep. And yep. and I think that that's a place I really want to see development because you don't want notifications all the time. Totally. You don't need that. Mm-hmm. You want information that's useful to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so much of what we're buying and being sold misses the mark. And it's I'm I mean I'm firmly i've been you know worked on a few projects that are technology related mm-hmm. um and and some some of the stuff you're kind of talking about and um you know i'm a firm believer that the technology out there all exists just there's not an innovative company who's putting it together which i would do if that was my skill set but like you said we have to wait for someone smarter someone to do smarter it. than us and we'll just take advantage of it yeah we'll, we'll buy it yeah we'll buy it i'll it buy it that's yeah, right i'll totally. support it Let's go into some rapid fire questions. It doesn't have to be rapid fire answers, but these are going to be rapid fire questions. Sure. It's your first day off after your work week. Maybe it's a Saturday. Maybe it's not. Yeah. How do you, you're standing in front of your kitchen. How do you make your eggs for yourself? Yeah. A uh, few different options. I, I don't do the same thing. I'm not totally a creature of habit. So uh, there's a few different ways I go, but I would say I probably am going to have eggs and probably bacon. Okay. Although I've been buying some ham from Olsen Farms. Ooh. Their ham is 
dynamite. Interesting. It's very good. Okay. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, I like a poached egg. Yep. I also like a soft boiled egg. Mm-hmm. Um, those are my two favorites. Every once in a while, I'll get crazy and do something else, a scramble, a sunny yeah. side up, something like that. But, but poached or soft boiled. Does Shiva have a preference? Uh, she seems to like soft boiled also. Interesting. Yeah. She likes that sunny helps. side up. Sunny side uh-huh. up or soft boiled is her. I don't like sunny side up eggs. You got to make sure that the whites are cooked. Yeah. Because otherwise problem. it's awkward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise it's gross. It's like eating a jellyfish. Yeah. If you're Same. just learning how to cook eggs and you're cooking them sunny side up, make sure the whites on top of the egg are cooked. Do you put a bowl over them and like steam them a little? No. Uh, you just turn it down super low and wait. I just, I yeah. just let it take a long yeah. time. Got it. Yeah. You can't rush it. Good to know. That's how I do it. Name an ingredient you're obsessed with right now, if anything. Mm. I mean, I think I'm obsessed with a lot of ingredients. Um, I think what amazes me and when where I find my obsession is, you know, it's incredible to, I mean, I lived in Alaska. I visit home regularly. Even there, um, in what is a food desert, uh <laughs> you can find these incredible products which are made right there in the local area. There's somebody who's grazing bees and has honey. There's somebody who's making homemade preserves. There's somebody who's making bread. There's somebody who's raising animals. There's somebody who's raising chickens. Like it's that stuff that really gets me going is you can, you never know who's, who's growing the, I mean, to me, the best egg is not the best egg. It's the egg grown next door. Yeah. And I think that those are the ingredients that get me the most excited. Love it. Name a book, or maybe it can be a podcast episode or or, or a talk that you had with a mentor that's yeah. been particularly impactful in your career. And I just say book because it's easier to get. If, if you say that there was a talk that you had with your mentor, it's not as easy to prescribe that yeah. to people. But if there's been something that you read that's... Yeah. And you maybe mentioned it already with the, the book, I first book you mentioned. Yeah, I Am That. Um, I mean, I Am That's a big one. Um, that's more of like a personal development mm-hmm. book. Um, your question was career? Yeah, like most impactful in your career as far as like giving you some sense of direction yeah. or confidence or... Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, this is... This is there's three books. This is a question you sent to me before, mm-hmm. so I kind of thought about it a mm-hmm. little bit, and definitely I am that. They're they're easy answers, um, but there's three of them. Uh, I am that is personal, um, and then I always have to say Dune. Interesting, huge <laughs> fan of Dune. Read it, read it more than once. Yep, read yep. it more than once. It's a it's a it's a behemoth, um, but I think um, it's influenced me tremendously. Wow. And, um, and then, and I think a lot of these ideas are kind of espoused in it, to be Mm -hmm. honest. Um, and then also I would say, uh, setting the table. Yeah. Danny Meyer. Classic. Yeah. I mean, it really, it summarizes a lot of what I think the industry should be about, Mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in, in his model. You know, it, the employees do come first. Mm-hmm. And if you have happy employees, the customers are happy. And if the customers customers are happy, the shareholders are happy. And so I'm, I'm behind that. And talk about a guy who's like stuck to his guns over the years. Yeah. Like, and been successful at totally, it. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Is there a technique that you're still intimidated by in the kitchen? Uh, yeah, I remember this one too. Uh, yes. Yes. There are lots of them. Yeah. They're yeah, everywhere. Yep. Um, I mean, 
is the question is there a technique i'm not intimidated uh-huh. by and um i don't even know if that's an answer totally i mean there's the things that i'm i cook often and i know that i can do well um but one tiny thing changes and you have to rethink it and you have to change your ratio or your timing or how many people you're cooking for and and so i just say always be uncomfortable yeah don't don't assume you're gonna crush it know that you have to work your ass off to crush it but you're capable of crushing it sub question for that you worked in you worked in japan are you in the camp and maybe you can just share your opinion (laughs) on how you feel about this the the washing the rice for five years cooking the rice before you get to touch fish yeah i mean that's not something that you and i I mean, yeah. maybe you, it's a romantic mentality to think about, romantic. but in practice, neither of you, neither of us did that. Like yeah. we kind of like did a J curve with our progress because yeah. we didn't abide by that. Yeah. And it, I don't necessarily think that it harmed us in any way, but it's a mentality that's very romanticized where it's like, you don't get to touch the fish until you're yeah. ready kind of thing. Yeah. I will say, um, this is like the old world meeting the new world. Yep, it's yep. a total microcosm of mm-hmm. it. And um, I think this is also a, an aspect of my life, which has been white privilege. Uh, I went to Japan and um, they're like, who? I was 19. I didn't have any experience in restaurants. I had no one on my resume, really. I was a kid. Um, and, and anything I could have claimed on my resume was bullshit. Mm-hmm. And so they... They treated me like a foreigner who is like, who's this American guy? Like, oh, Jim Carrey, oh, <laughs> like whatever, like you know, Tom Hanks. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I walked into the restaurants and they treated me like an honored guest. Wow. And the guy next to me, who was a harder worker than me and had been working there for five years, was not able to do the things that I was able to do in a week at a restaurant, for wow. example. And uh, that's totally fucked up. Mm-hmm. That's totally Super fucked, fucked up. up. Um, I'm grateful for the experience I had. Um, I'm sure that guy is learning something that I will never, ever, ever learn. Totally. Because he like cares internally. More and he's uh-huh. willing to take that time. Um, and, and maybe that's a better person. Yep. yep. Um, it very well could be a better person. I know that the restaurants in Japan were that I was in uh, Hyote and Kicho in particular. If anyone out there has the opportunity to work in either of those restaurants, they're both in Kyoto, uh, go there. Like those guys are, I mean, the skill levels that are prominent and, and I mean, not just prominent, the skill levels that everyone has who's working in those restaurants so far surpass what you see at any other restaurant I have ever worked at. Um, it's laughable. It's truly laughable. Mm-hmm. Like the thousands of years of time makes a difference. Yeah. And, you know, big shock there. But um, is it is it good? Is it right? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um but it certainly makes better food. Interesting. Yeah. Love it. You somehow get a call right after this interview that you've just won an all-expenses-paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant, and when you get there, there's someone that you've always wanted to have dinner with waiting to have dinner with you. What is that restaurant, and who is that person? Yeah. 
Well, I would have said you, but we just had this conversation. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. <laughs> um, short of Justin, I would say, um, you know, I haven't eaten at Favikin. Mm-hmm. And uh, I draw a lot of inspiration from that restaurant and that idea. And so I would like to see what the what it's all about. I I um, you know, it's a it's a restaurant I toyed with going and and stashing in, and timing didn't work out. Family shit, blah blah blah, whatever. I didn't end up making it there, and so um, I would love to have a meal there, and we'll just play the card that's on the top of my head, which is David fucking Goggins. Yeah, I I mean, I've been listening to him a little bit lately. I've listened to him before, but I'm listening to him again lately. And uh, if there's a person that I find inspiring this today, it's that guy for sure. It would also be kind of weird to go to like a fine dining restaurant with that guy because he would probably yeah. feel like way too pampered. The other reason that I that I want I would just to see those two worlds meet uh-huh. would be incredible, incredible. Can That's, you imagine? No, yeah, I can't. I yeah. honestly can't. Yeah. Did you read the book, the Favikin book? Uh, no, I have not. Have not read <laughs> David Goggins' book or the Favikin. Interesting. Book. Yeah, I feel like you can get a lot of what David Goggins is about from a lot of his longer podcast interviews that he does. I'm I almost bought the book yeah. last night. Uh-huh. I'm going to buy it. Uh-huh. I'm going to check it's, it cuz yeah. it's an audio yep. the audio book is yep. what I'm going to buy cuz he does like does the in, de- yeah. in depth discussions uh-huh. of the, the yeah, stories. Yeah, like the content in the audio book is different than the book book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um back to the Favikin book, I think that was one of the most influential back to the moment that you said about when Massimo came to cook with you. Yeah. I had the same thing happen when I read the Favikin book for the first time. Wow. Because I was at a point in my career where I was like, I felt like I had plateaued. I mean, like the amount of coffee table Michelin star cookbooks that I would get and then read yeah. and then just like get no value from them yeah. was like exhausting. You're like, and so oh, I it's find another Michelin star exactly. restaurant that needs to pan- like pad their income. Yep, yeah, exactly. Great. And like white background uh, plating something, <laughs> whatever. It was like not even close to interesting. And so I read the Favikin book and it was just like everything that I, back to the Parmesan water thing, he has this whole rant that he goes on where he's like, why do we make chicken stock with celery, carrot, and onion? Because now it's a chicken, celery, carrot, and onion stock. If you want to make chicken stock, put chicken bones in it and that's it. Yeah. The second you put onions in it, it's a different kind of stock. And it was just like all these things. I I just love that shit that like myth busting everything that we learned in culinary school thing. Yeah. Yeah. There was a funny moment at CIA, and I don't know if you were here at the time when um, Nathan Mirvold came to speak. I wasn't there. And there I was heard some him speak, but there was some sort of drama that happened, and I'm going to probably totally misquote this, where the the board or the the chair people of the school basically got told by Nathan Mirvold, um, <laughs> or it was the other way around. Uh-huh. If you don't say good things about modernist cuisine. Or no, if they said they wanted Nathan Mirvold to be a honored graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. Oh, yeah. And Nathan Mirvold was like, I don't want to do that. And then they were like, if you don't do it, we're going to talk shit about your book. Uh And he was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so he did the whole thing, put on a CIA chef jacket, got the medal around his neck, walked the podium, whatever, gave this whole speech. And the funniest part, and this is so Nathan Mirvold, as he basically just stood up there and used principles from modernist cuisine to myth bust all the shit that we were learning in school. Yeah. He was like, shocking vegetables, it's not real. Like, yeah. the way that you're doing it, it's not really doing what they're telling you it's doing. Yeah. And like, the way that they tell you to start chicken stock with cold water, 
don't do that. That doesn't really help you at all. Yeah. And it's like, he just went on and on and on and on and on. And I loved it. Yeah. I loved it because it was like, I really, at its core, want to know why stuff's happening as opposed to like how you think it should be done or how you were taught it was to be done. Yeah. And it was just a really fascinating thing. And that's that's what a lot of the Favikin book did for me. So that's why I really, really enjoyed that book in particular. So I want to come at this from a different yeah. angle. Yeah. I was listening to, I don't know, NPR. It was mm-hmm. on the radio in the car sometime. And it was this woman who worked in a university who was like a history buff but worked in some totally scientific field. And um, she came across a friend uh, who was like a, a like a geek on Victorian era literature but also was a scientist. And they decided to go through these ancient cookbooks and like cook the recipes. And one of them was um, like a cure for an eye infection, a sty. Interesting. Right? You get a sty. Yep. It's just an eye yep. infection. It's yep. like one of the most common mm-hmm. infections a person can have. It's mm-hmm. the same bacteria. It can be all over your body, but yep. when it's in their eye, it's called a sty. Mm-hmm. So I've had one, by the way. It's really painful. I just have eye. Super Yeah, painful. pretty, like super common. Mm-hmm. So um, they went through... And they were both, that's what it was. They were both like biochemists or something who worked in laboratories that were trying to figure out new treatments for uh, drug-resistant, you know, uh, bacteria. And so they were, they made this recipe as a joke and it, and it required like all these crazy ingredients and it took several days. You had to cook it and then you had to just like set, let it sit for like five days before you could use it. And, um... They made this recipe and it was like a medicine that you're supposed to apply to the eye and they did a test with it on a Petri dish and it worked better than any other antibiotic that exists. Wow. And they were like, we don't know why, huh? but this ancient recipe, which seems to have no, I mean, and it's like, you know, uh, even the measurements were totally sure. archaic. Not even close to they, precise. They didn't even yep. make sense. Yep. They were super archaic. They mm-hmm. were out of time to a point where it it didn't even make sense in the, in the modern language. And um, they made this recipe and it worked more effectively and they couldn't figure out why. And they basically determined that this was something that would kill bacteria. And this was discovered over time through trial and error. And that's something that I want Nathan Merville to talk about. Yeah. It's like, yeah, okay. It maybe that's not why you shock a vegetable, but why did we shock vegetables that way? Or like, how did uh-huh. we learn to get to that point? Totally. Like, what's the history yeah, yeah, yeah. of it? Because I geek out on modernist cuisine. Mm-hmm. I've adopted a lot of those principles into my cooking style, but I always wonder, is there something we're missing? Is yep. there another element that we didn't catch? Before? Totally. I have this whole video I made on uh, chef uniforms and why we still wear chef jackets. Yeah. It's a really fascinating topic Okay, to get into because it's like a lot of times you're standing over these crazy wood fire things. So you got to have something that doesn't absorb heat. Yep. So you wear the, the classic, that white starchy material. Yeah. The buttons are made in a way so that you can easily, if you catch on fire, you can rip it off with one hand. Yeah, exactly. And then the panels are so that, so as a chef, you're getting crazy in the dish area, like then you can swap and go out in the dining room. Yeah, exactly. It's like, how often do we actually use any of that quote unquote technology anymore? Yeah. We don't. So yeah. why is the chef coat still the same? Why is I just it think still it's a crazy same? history is funny like that, 
and humans are creatures of habit and some things are a little bit harder to kill than others. Yeah. I just think it's funny. What do you think chefs can be doing to, what do you think chefs can be doing better to help the next generation? Better to help the next generation, the next generation of chefs? Yeah. And this, this question comes from a place of, I find intense frustration with the people who say good cooks are hard to find. There's no good help these days. Yeah. Um, I hear that a lot. And there's th- th- those same chefs are often doing zero to help. And it's not to say that they have to start a weekly podcast like I'm doing because I know that that's not realistic when they're running a restaurant. But maybe it's, I don't know, what, 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 where does your head go? Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know what people can do. I have to think about it for a second. But I know I feel like a big part of the problem is the disparity between what people expect when they decide they want to be a chef and what the reality is. Um, because the reality is you're working minimum wage and you're living in a fairly shitty place and you commute as far as you can afford to commute and you're working your ass off and you're getting no thanks and that's it. Mm -hmm. And you're learning. Sure. You're definitely learning if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. You're learning because you're in a good place. Um, And most people are totally not excited by that. They get into it and they say... This is not what I thought. I can go do so many cooler things and make more money uh, or do things that aren't as cool but make way more money. Uh, What blows my mind is the people who are career changers. That's what blows my mind. People who are in finance. I have Mm -hmm. a great friend who was in finance and now he's a chef. And it's like... Same. I have another friend. Yeah. What were you smoking? Yeah. (laughs) Um, You had it good. But uh, what can we do? I mean, I think... What we can do is teach all of the next generation the, you know, the value of work ethic because that's what we're looking for in the kitchen. And it's never going to go away. It doesn't matter if you know how to cook, even if you know how to make roux or scramble an egg, it doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is that you can work hard because mm-hmm. we can teach you all the other stuff. Yeah. And so I think... That's what we can do is yeah. teach people, and I don't know how to do it, mm-hmm. but um, is to teach everyone in the, the generation after us how to work hard and do it every day and be proud of it. Mm-hmm. That's great. One more question that I didn't get to. Luis R. Humel asks, any hints on running a seasonal menu? Luis. And this is a very interesting question that I think you can provide a lot of yeah. insight on. Yeah. And I want to like... There, this is going to be like more or less the last question. And then I also want to ask you if you have any closing thoughts. So maybe that can be going yeah. through your brain as you're kind of answering this. But and on a more creative, positive note, seasonal yeah. menu. What do you what are you thinking about? Well, um, seasonal to me means local. Those two things. If it's not seasonal, I mean, there's a if it's winter here, it's somewhere, it's summer mm-hmm. in half the, half the other side of the world. So, um, seasonal really only means local and in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And so the most important thing in building a seasonal or local menu is your purveyors, who you're getting the food from and, uh, build those relationships, like go out and, and from experience, I can say that if you want to meet a farmer, 
um, or producer of anything, just go tell them you want to come help and work and go work there a day or a day a month. And you will immediately be welcomed with open arms into that community. And um, through that, you will find so many products which are not even on the market that you can use um, that no one else has or that no one else has heard of or that there's not enough quantity of. Um, and it's about those personal relationships. And that's the beautiful thing about local cuisine is it's not, can you pay, you know, $45 a pound for the scallop that was diver caught and like, doesn't fucking matter. You can get this crazy thing that you didn't even know existed right in your backyard. And you know, the person who raised it or who picked it or who foraged it. And, um, and that to me is, that's that's where I go. And, I mean, if you have good ingredients, it's hard to make a bad menu. I mean, if you know how to add salt, acid, and sweetness, mm-hmm. you're, you're 90%. You're there. Yeah, if uh-huh. you have good ingredients and you can mm-hmm. do that, you're good. Yeah, yeah. So Cool. Mike or Mowry, any other closing thoughts, things you want to leave people with, something that's been on your mind or, you know, like? So, hmm. I have so many things on my mind. Yeah, but, totally. But uh, I mean, I think I just want to encourage people to uh, take the la- the path less t- less less taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's that expression? Traveled. Travel. Less, yeah, take uh, the path less traveled. That's what is the right. the adjective? It's uh, yeah, less. Is it less traveled? I believe so. Okay, yeah. I think it is less traveled. Mm-hmm. Uh, take the path less traveled. Um, it's way more interesting. And, um, and I think that there's as much room for success in it as anywhere else. And the, the bound, the upper boundaries for success are way, way higher. So that's what I would say to people. I'm super grateful to have caught you at this point because I think this leaves the door wide open for another episode two down the line when it's like things are up and running or there's like been a massive change. You'll probably be (laughs) married. You'll (laughs) hopefully living over there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I could just be like, Hey, (laughs) come over. Yeah. (laughs) I still have some of that bourbon. (laughs) Yeah. Looks like it. Cool, man. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Justin. It's been a pleasure. Ba-ba-ba-boom. That is the end of this interview. Quick monologue here. If you want to follow along with Micah and keep up to date on all of the exciting projects that he is up to, definitely check out some of the links that I've gotten in the description of wherever you're listening. I always enjoy hearing feedback from you as well. So if you've got something to add, go ahead and tweet at me or leave a comment on the YouTube version of this episode. If you've got guests you'd like to see me sit down with for future episodes, please tag both of us in a tweet and say, you know, kind of like why you'd want us to sit down or what where you see a possible connection to be made or even like a question you want to see us deep dive or even just send them a dm on instagram and say hey i'd like to see you do an episode on the emulsion podcast with justin and i will do my best to make that happen also i do know outro justin says it but thank you so much for listening and an extra thanks for your patience with me while i'm traveling because i know that i've been a little bit behind on getting you some of the content that is promised so without further ado roll the outro we did it you're in outro land now thank you so much i appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know hey by making it to the end you're the type of person that i want to speak to directly this little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay 
up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now is normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here. Excuse, excuse me. Pardon me.